0: The Old Testament reading comes from Ezekiel chapter 34. Uh, This is, the Israelites are now in the Babylonian exile, so they're in captivity. And uh, Ezekiel has just finished, just prior to our reading, he's just finished uh, rebuking the shepherds of Israel, the the kings, the prophets, the priests, the people who should be leading the Israelites um, for not leading the people well and kind of causing the captivity. And now he's talking uh, as God is going to be taking over the shepherding. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And now God is kind of now turning his attention to talk to the the self-centered leaders of the Israelites. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats, Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder, and thrust at all the weak with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And this is after King David's time, so this is foreshadowing to Jesus. And he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. The epistle reading is from Philippians chapter 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Uh, In this reading uh, comes the, the parable of the lost sheep. Most of you guys know that one. Um, just to kind of waylay your fears about your concerns about the poor 99 that have been left behind and abandoned. Uh, typical practice, shepherding practice is to have multiple shepherds working at once so that one of them could go and find the lost sheep while the others stay behind. Um, also, as we're reading that, keep in mind what we just read in Ezekiel about how God is going to be rescuing his scattered sheep and caring specifically for the, the weak and the downtrodden sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So uh, Philippians 3, 8 and 9, let's talk
1: about that. This is just a classic, uh, this, this is a textbook Paul passage about salvation. That's what it's about. Salvation. How stuff gets fixed. Everybody, uh, everybody has a story of salvation that they tell themselves. I mean, we typically think of salvation as like a religious word. But if you if you watch a TV show, or especially if you read a novel or watch a movie, uh, in that story there will be salvation. There will be something's wrong, something that's wrong that needs to get fixed. And in the course of the movie... Uh, that thing will get fixed, or it won't get fixed. Sometimes movies, especially uh, you know, if it's trying to be existential, will subvert our expectations of, of the problem getting solved, and it won't. But usually if you watch, um, if you watch an, uh, a superhero movie, there's something wrong. There's people in a plane that's crashing, and then Superman's going to come, and he's going to swoop in, and he's going to rescue the plane. There's salvation. If I was talking to my uh, seniors in senior religion class, if you're watching a Disney princess movie, there's something wrong, and then there's salvation, that uh, she needs to kiss the good-looking guy, and then everything is uh, good after that. Everything's happily ever after. If you're watching uh, a, a murder mystery, there's a detective that comes in and corners the bad guy and exposes him and with all kinds of cool logic, and that's salvation, our own individual stories have salvation too. Hopefully it's not as dramatic as, uh, you're in a plane crash and you need somebody to pick the plane up, or you've been cursed by a witch and you need a good looking guy to kiss you so that you'll wake up and live happily ever after, or you've, somebody that you know has been murdered and you need the famous detective to solve it. But we all have a story with stuff that's wrong, and we all have in our mind a way for that stuff to get fixed. A lot of times for us Americans, ironically, who are uber wealthy, it's, I don't have enough money, but hopefully someday I will have enough money saved up to, you know, buy the vacation home or to to move to the Gulf Shores or whatever it is. Or I'm lonely and I need friends or a significant other. We have, there's a problem in our life and we need it to be fixed. Paul's going to tell a story too. Paul's trying to tell the story, not just of his own life or your individual lives, but he's trying to tell the whole story of the universe the big thing that's wrong, and the big thing that needs to get fixed. And that's what he's doing this morning. And so for Paul, there's, we're going to read this uh, Philippians 3, 8, and 9 again, and there's two key terms that I want to talk about. just can't possibly uh, unpack these completely in 20 minutes, but let's start talking about them now. And then one key concept, which we'll think about today, and then we'll also think about next week when we talk about verse, verse 10 in Philippians 3. And the key The key terms that he's going to talk about are righteousness and faith. And the key concept is knowing or knowledge. What do these words mean? It's the kind of thing that religious people say a lot. I could get up here and say, righteousness, faith, 50 times, and we would all kind of like, oh, yes, righteousness and faith. That's important stuff. It's actually good to to think sometimes about what righteousness is in the Bible and what faith is. So, Philippians 3, 8, 8 and 9. Paul says, indeed, I count everything. He's saying indeed because you remember last week, He do you remember last week in verses 4 through 7, he says, I've got it all together. I've got uh, social status. I've got the religious badges. I'm a good guy. As respecting the law, I'm completely blameless. I've got it all together. But I realize that that stuff is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All those other things. Jesus, so Paul's not saying that social status isn't important. That pleasure's not important. That money's not important. He's just saying that compared to knowing Jesus, compared to dipping into the secret at the heart of the universe, all the other stuff is kind of shallow, vapid, empty. Actually, he's just a stronger word than that. He says, for, uh, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, it's kind of an ESV polite word for the Greek word, which is actually the word excrement. He counts his whole life that he's built up around himself as like sewage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. It's a pretty strong language. It's a pretty strong language. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him... We're not going to talk this morning about what it means to be found in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? And that's just a complete shame because that's so that's so important. We're going to pass that up for now. We're going to assume it. And then we'll come back to it at some, in some following week in a different text because Paul talks about union with Christ all the time. Not having a righteousness of my own, verse 9, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, so here's let's talk about righteousness for a few minutes. Righteousness is not a substance. There's not like a material principle that is called righteousness, which you do or you don't have. Righteousness in the Bible, this is super important. I'm going to try to unpack this a little bit. It's going to be hard to like, hear this and then not hear it because it's a little bit different, I think. Righteousness in the Bible is all about relationship. It's all about the relationships that you're in, connecting in the way that you were supposed to connect in that relationship. Sometimes righteousness isn't even about morality. It's just about, are you right with me? Are we good together? Good with each other, I should say. Let me tell you a story, and this is a great story. Very, very creepy. Just one of the reasons, things things that makes it great. There's a guy that you all know named uh, Judah. He's one of the uh, sons of Jacob. Uh, uh, If you grew up reading the Bible, you know about Judah. Uh, He's the one for whom the Jews are named. He's the uh, uh, Judah is the father. He's one one of the 12 sons of Jacob through which the tribe of Judah came. Judah has a daughter-in-law named Tamar. Uh, His son, married to Tamar, dies suddenly. Uh, By the law of leveret marriage, which isn't a Bible law, it's not God's law, but it was in the ancient world, this was the way it worked. If a wife was married to a guy and he died without giving her any kids, the parents of that guy were responsible to give her their next youngest son. And, Whenever she would get pregnant and have a baby, that child would not belong to him. It would belong to his deceased brother. It's kind of a weird thing. It's, it was basically Social Security. That way, she would have somebody taking care of her. That guy couldn't take that son and say, this is my son. And that, that son would belong to her. And in her old age, she would have no husband. She would have no means to wealth. She would, of course, an ancient Israelite, not be working and earning money unless it was a bad kind of work. More on that in a second. She would have that son in her old age to take care of her. Well, Judah gives her the next son, and that son dies right away too. And now Judah's thinking, this lady is bad luck. This lady's going to kill off all my kids one by one. And so Tamar goes to Judah and says, hey, uh, son number three, right? When's it going to happen? Judah says, you're going to need to hold off on that because... Uh, he's not old enough yet, let's just wait. So she waits, and, and before long she realizes uh, that um, J- Judah has no intention of giving her his third son. So here's what she does. This is uh, uh, not biblical morality, but it's what she does. She dresses up like a prostitute. She finds Judah. She propositions him. He gets her pregnant, not knowing she has a veil on, not knowing it's his own daughter-in-law. She gets pregnant. Judas furious because his daughter-in-law has betrayed the family. He he drags her out to the the, the gate of the city and demands that she be stoned. And she says, okay, that's probably fair. I I did commit adultery. But the man with whom I committed adultery is the man to whom these rings belong, which she had taken as collateral from him. He's crushed, of course. He's publicly ashamed of what he's done. And he says this phrase, Tamar, you are more righteous than I. Righteous, in this case, does not mean morality. (laughs) Neither one of these people have been moral. Neither one of them have done good works. What he means is this, is that in our relationship, I was the bad guy, and you were the one who was trying to do what was right. In our relationship, you were faithful to the family and I was the one who was unfaithful. That's all he meant. He didn't, he didn't mean you're doing a good job here. He just means that in this relationship, I messed it up and you didn't. That's primarily what relationship means in the Bible. Let me give you a more God example from Daniel chapter 9. Just like in the Ezekiel reading that Dave read for us just a few minutes ago, In Daniel there in captivity. Daniel is praying in Daniel 9, like, God, into this captivity, take us out of exile. We want to go back home to Jerusalem. Your people are cooped up here in Babylon. Get us out of here. And he says this. He's praying and he says, Oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God, you are the one who keeps faithful covenant with us. You never abandon us. Unlike us, we have sinned, he says, and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O oh Lord, O oh, oh Lord, belongs righteousness. And he doesn't mean it is true that God does good things. That's not primarily what Daniel means here. What he means here is what he said in the context. Lord, you're the one who's faithful to this relationship. You have never abandoned us. We're the ones who've abandoned you. We're the ones who have done what we've strayed away from you. We've followed other gods. We've not been, we've not been faithful to keep your law. To you, O oh Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel. That's what righteousness is in the Bible. Here's how it works. I'm going to give you the big picture, righteousness and covenant, in 20 seconds. God makes a relationship with His people. In the Old Testament, we call these people um, Israel. In the New Testament, they're still Israel, but now Gentiles, most of us in here, have been included in this people. And God says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And God promises... I'm going to be faithful to this. And you're going to be faithful to this covenant. And whoever is not faithful to this covenant will be destroyed. That's the way covenants work. And then God is completely faithful to this covenant. We are completely faithless to this covenant. And by right, it should be destroyed. But what does God do? God maintains the righteousness of the covenant by staying faithful to it and by taking upon himself the covenant curses. When Jesus dies on the cross... He takes the punishment that we deserve for breaking covenant. And that's what righteousness is. God, who is righteous, he's faithful to, the, faithful to the relationship, allows us to be faithful to the relationship too. We aren't really faithful. We disobey him all the time. But he says, for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ, who you have been connected to by baptism and faith, I'm going to call you faithful. I'm going to let you be righteous. Not, it has nothing to do with good works. Except as a secondary outcome of this relationship, has to do with are you right with God or not? If you are, you're righteous. God's right with us, He's faithful. We're not right with Him, but He makes us right with Him, He gives us His righteousness. In other words, righteousness is not a substance. Look, so here's let me give you an example. During the Reformation, uh the, the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Roman Catholic Church taught this: that for God to accept you, you had to have good works. No, you're not gonna do good works all the time. Thankfully, the holy saints have done lots and lots of good works. In fact, more good works than they even need. If you pray to these holy saints, these works of supererogation, they were called, these works of supererogation, if you pray to the saints, if you give money in the name of a saint, these works can be passed on. The works of St. Sebastian, the works of the Virgin Mary can be passed on to you. The medieval church taught this. I'm not sure how much the contemporary Roman Catholic Church teaches this. They were called works of supererogation which the saints could give to you to count as your own works. One of the things that the children of the Reformation did, which is kind of a mistake, is to say, actually, saints don't have good works that they can pass on. That part's true. Jesus does, though. Jesus was so good that he has all these good works which he can give to you, like righteousness is a substance which can be passed on to you. That's not what righteousness is about. Righteousness is not about good works being passed on to you. Righteousness is about faithfulness to the covenant. God is faithfulness, faithful to the covenant. We are not, but he gives us that faithfulness. Just check out the first line of the first hymn we sang this morning. It's about faith. Primarily, the hymn's about our faith. It's called By Faith. But the first line says, By faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness. In the Bible, faithfulness, righteousness, always starts with God's faithfulness to us. If you are righteous, it's because God's faithful not because you've done good works or you've had the good works of somebody imputed to your account or infused into your account. It's because God is faithful to the covenant, so faithful that he's willing to take on the covenant, curses himself, to maintain this covenant. Okay. Righteousness, in other words, is God's faithfulness to to the covenant. Let's let's move on to faith. Speaking of faith, verse 9, let's read this again. "...and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law." but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. When he says, not righteousness of my own, what he means is, last week, the things that you do in your life that make you feel right, right? The things that, like, your social status or your financial status, or just stuff, the stuff I was talking about last week. I'll give you another quick example. I was preaching a sermon one time at Good Shepherd when I was there. And I was talking about how, in the sermon, I was talking about how I'm such a bad father. And after the sermon, a lady, a sweet little old lady came up and she said to me, she, she's probably in her 80s, and she said to me, I, you know what? You need to be easier on yourself. I always felt like I was a bad parent too. But my kids grew up and they went to college. That was what.' And she stopped there. That's what she said. It, in her mind... Like her kids going to college was the validation of her motherhood. Okay, And I felt bad for her, except, I, I mean, that's not my deal. But I have other deals. I have other things that make me feel like I'm doing a good job, that I'm okay. For her, it was like my kids went to college. And so it's quite possible that her kids were first-generation college students. And for her, that was a big deal. That's having a righteousness of your, righteousness of your own. We all do it. We all have these things. When you look at somebody else and you're like, Okay, so you bought a a new car, big deal. For them, it's huge. They drive around that car, and they know that when people look at them, they're the kind of person who drives the type of car that they're driving around in right now, and it makes them happy. For this lady, it was going to college. For me, it's something else. These things that validate yourself, that give you this standing. Paul is saying, none of that is worth anything. It's all excrement. The only important thing is faith in Jesus. All right. Now, again, let's go back to faith. What is faith? Let's start off with what faith isn't. Faith is not a substance. It's not something that you have inside of yourself that needs to be kind of tapped up to the top. And when it is, then you really, really believe in Jesus. You really, really know that Jesus existed and that he lived and died on the cross for your sins. You really know it. I was teaching a seventh grader. Again, this was a good shepherd a couple years ago. And the seventh grade girl was in my class and, and we started talking during class. And she basically said to me, like, I'm, I frequently, so she's in seventh grade, right? And she grew up in a Christian home and she's just hit that sweet spot where she's all of a sudden thinking, well, wait a minute. Mom and dad were always Christians, but like, am I? Do I really believe this stuff? Is this stuff even believable at all? And she's starting to think, and so she said to me, she's like, I have like these huge doubts sometimes and I'm just scared that like, My faith isn't good enough. Right. She'd made the mistake of thinking that faith was the substance, like, you know, like mercury in a thermometer. And like sometimes it's really good. It's really up there. But then sometimes your faith gets small. And if it gets below 45 degrees, then it's kind of cold. And there's a point, but who knows where it's at? But there's like a point, you know, maybe it's 45 degrees where God says, "Ah, ah, you're, ah, you're too low. You don't believe enough. And faith is not a substance. It's not like that. First of all, you'll never have 100% faith. You realize this, right? Unless you've died and gone to be with Jesus and perfectly know him like you are known, you'll never completely have 100% faith. You'll always be that guy who brings his sick child to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe, but you've got to help my unbelief. Your faith is always going to ebb and flow, but don't think of it as a substance that's there and down and up. Faith is not a thing. Faith is a disposition. It's an attitude towards something or other. It's an attitude towards my kids going to college. If that can just happen, I'll be good. I'll be saved. If the good-looking guy will just come and kiss me, I'll wake up and we'll live together happily ever after. If I can just get that car, if I can just get that home on the Gulf Shores, whatever it is. Paul is saying here, it's faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Connected to Jesus in such a way that you rely upon him completely. Now, do you see what's happening here? There are times when you're going to doubt. There are times when you're going to struggle with sin. And I'm not saying that that's not important. I I don't want you to struggle with sin. God doesn't want you to struggle with sin or with doubt. The question is, what's your disposition in that point? Are you turned towards God and Jesus Christ? God, I need your help. There's a Here's two guys. I'm going to introduce you to two different guys. One is strong, independent, a little bit bullheaded, but but he's an independent guy who does what he thinks he needs to get done. And sometimes he makes mistakes and sometimes he does well. But he works real hard and he's a fine, upstanding guy. Doesn't commit a whole lot of bad deeds. Here's another guy. He wanted to have sex with his wife, with his friend's wife, And so he offed his friend after he had sex with her and got her pregnant to hide the deed. Which guy is the good guy and which guy is the bad guy? Well, you would say that Saul's the good guy. He's strong. He's independent. He makes some foolish mistakes sometimes. He offered a sacrifice one time when he was told not to. A lamb died when it shouldn't have died. Okay. Here's David. David kills one of his friends because he got his wife pregnant and wants to hide the deed. Who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? In God's eyes, who's the bad guy and the good guy? It's not the moral guy. It's not the strong, independent guy. It's the guy who falls down on his knees and says, I'm guilty of bloodshed. Don't cast your Holy Spirit from me. Renew the joy of my salvation, Lord. Because your salvation is completely dependent upon your disposition towards God. It's completely about how you relate to God through Jesus Christ. It anything to do with, like, your, I like, can prove Christianity, or I'm a super good guy. It has everything to do with, do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Not believe in Jesus merely in a cognitive way, like, okay, I think he existed. But, like, where do you turn when you have doubts? Where do you turn when you're immoral? If you turn to Jesus, you are righteous. All right, let me sum up here. Let me say this. This is why we tell our kids, right? So you tell your kids, like Harry just got his first phone. And so I tell Harry, so here's what I want you to do. At some point, you're going to go to a party, and stuff's going to go downhill. And you're going to make some stupid mistakes. I want you to text me and tell us, and we will come and get you. And I promise you won't get in trouble. I just want you to be honest with me and tell me what's going on. What am I saying here? Like my relationship with Harry, the proper way that I, I want Harry and me to relate is not like, I need you to think that I exist. Okay, It's not that I need you to do X amount of good deeds. I do not want you to go to a party and make stupid mistakes. Or then there's going to be hell to pay. What my, You guys who are parents, you know this is true. The disposition I want with Harry is like, okay, I, I know that you're going to do stupid stuff. I don't want you to, but I know you're going to. I just need you to be honest with me. I want to help you. That's the way that God is with us. He knows our weaknesses. He doesn't excuse them. He knows that we're sinful. He doesn't excuse it. But he says, I do want you to rely on me. I want you to treat me like, my, like, like I'm your father and you're my son. That's what faith is. And, pa- and Paul says, we're going to get into what knowing Christ is. That faith means knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Again, verse 10 is really going to unpack this for us next week. What knowing Christ is. But this is the heart of the Christian religion. Is that God calls us to a righteousness, not of our own, but a righteousness that he gives us. And when we have that righteousness, we have it because he has created through Jesus, he has created this belief in Jesus, this reliance on Jesus that is salvation. Check this out. This is super important. What we're not talking about here is by believing in Jesus, you'll get salvation. What Paul is saying is by faith in Christ, you get Jesus.
0: And having Jesus is salvation. Amen.